Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Forestbrook. A special welcome to any guests or visitors that we have joining us today. Uh, my name is Kevin Armstrong, and I serve as the senior pastor for this church. Welcome. It's great to have you with us here today. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the presence of the Lord. What a wonderful song we just sang. Let's uh, take a moment just to rest in that and pray. Heavenly Father, we, we still ourselves before you in your presence. And we have your word wash over us, reminding us that in you we live, move, and have our being. And as we sang that song, 10,000 reasons, we are comforted and reassured of your faithfulness. And that we may rest in you, whatever our circumstances. If we are here today rejoicing, you rejoice with us. And you share that joy. If we are here today hurting, you hurt with us. And you come as comforter and healer. If we are here today grieving and mourning, you are our hope. You are our assurance. And you are the one who reminds us that grief finds its relief in you. You are all things to us. You are Yahweh, the Almighty One, the All-Sufficient One. The, you are I am that I am. You are able to be everything and anything that we need. And you call us your children. You call us by your name. You call us brothers and sisters of Jesus, servants of the living God. And all of this is from you. And so we still ourselves before you simply to receive, Lord, what can we say? How can we respond? Except to say thank you. And have your way with us. Holy Spirit, we invite you as we open the word of God today to bring this word to life in our hearing. I ask you to season the words of your servant with grace and with truth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and hear the things that you have prepared for us in your word. That we might be equipped as your people for the work of ministry in our time, faithful to the calling you've given us, that through us the light of the gospel and the light of the world might shine in the world all around us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces. And may you continue to draw humanity to yourself through the work and effort and faithfulness of your reconciled ones. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anybody here today who's 22 years of age? Anybody? 22? No, no, come on. There we go. Kyla, good for you. Yeah. Good. I knew there had to be a few of you because Chelsea is 22, my daughter Chelsea. She's not here today. Um, but uh, I knew that some of her friends are here and uh, that peer group. I was 22 years old when I became a Christian. I was your age, Kyla. 
And um, I, that was in 1982, so you can do the math. I'm not hiding you know, my age, so uh, you can do the math and figure that out. Uh, but that was, 1982 was an interesting year, and as I went back and kind of reflected on it, I have my memories of it, but I was interested to hear what some of the highlights were of 1982. So, for example, in 1982, Michael Jackson released his album Thriller. So, uh, there's a few who recognize that. Uh, and the big movie that year was E.T., right? Remember that? Uh, E.T., great movie. Um, and uh, also, that was the year that uh, Bill Gates, a young Bill Gates, 27 years old, uh, was promising the world all of the potential of this thing called the personal computer. So a uh, few of us have kind of lived through that age of uh, expanding and exploring that. Uh, but 1982 was also a newsworthy year. Uh, it was a year in which some, uh, some pretty uh, dramatic things were going on. There was the Falklands War in 1982, and that's where the, uh, the British uh, sent a naval... Uh, fleet down to the Falkland Islands off of Argentina to take it back from the Argentinians who had invaded it and uh, took it back by force. It was also the year that the uh, Israeli army invaded Lebanon and laid siege to Beirut for 10 weeks to try and break the chokehold that the Palestinian Liberation Organization had over them, a terrorist organization that was continually um, frustrating and attacking uh, Israel. And so those were tense times. Israel was drawn into conflict. Everyone wondered, was it going to expand? Were other Arab nations going to come in? And was this going to be the beginning, the conflagration of the Middle East? Uh, and they were unsettling times in many, many ways. And I remember as a young adult, a young Christian, I remember specifically being together with a group of my peers uh, young Christians, and we were together one night and we were talking about what was going on in the world and we wondered, could this be it? Could this be it? Are we, are we seeing and experiencing the beginning of the end? Israel was drawn into a war. We were on, we were on the nice edge of a, of a Middle East war and a bigger conflict. I was part of a church that believed in Bible prophecy and, and had a, a, a real emphasis on the end times and things that were going to happen before Jesus would return and, and usher in the kingdom of God. And I remember us looking at each other and I remember what it felt like thinking to myself, could this be it? Could this be the moment? Are we just days or maybe even weeks or months away from the return of Jesus Christ? Well, that was 36-some years ago. And it has always been thus for the people of God. This year, we've been focusing on the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven in its present reality, not its future reality. We began the year by talking about the fact that this kingdom is an already but not yet and that for so many of us as Christians our emphasis and our understanding and our hope for the kingdom of God is in the future and we said but, but we, want, we want to shift the focus. We want to reframe the kingdom so that we think about it in terms of its present reality and we spent the entire ministry year looking at that. And I hope that it's changed the way that you think and understand about the kingdom. And now with just one month left to go in this series, we want to, we want to refocus and, and we want to 
confess and admit and pay some attention to the fact that there is a future reality, that there is a future consummation, that the fullness of this kingdom and, the, and all of its marvelousness is not yet realized on earth. And Jesus had some things to say about that as well. And throughout the history of the church, Christians have always lived in anticipation of that day. When Jesus would return, and the end of the age as we know it would come. Jesus was asked this question by his disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. We'll use this passage today as our jumping off point. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's a question that has persisted on the lips of Christians for over 2,000 years. When? When? What will be the sign? Now the interesting thing for us to understand in this is what the question meant or what the disciples meant when they asked the question. Because we're down at this end of history having all this time to reflect upon it. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But for them, it had a very specific meaning. I mean, they were overawed by the temple. They were with Messiah. They believed and knew that he was Messiah. And they were just waiting for him to take his moment. For him to exercise that authority that God had given him and become the king he was destined to be. They were just hanging on for that. They were ready to fight for him. They were ready to die for him. They were ready to take up arms for him and lead a rebellion. Because they believed that that's what Messiah was. That Messiah was a king. And while they were waiting, perplexing over Jesus, waiting for this to happen, now, surely, at this moment, here in Jerusalem, in the temple, as Jesus makes this pronouncement of all of these buildings, this is the moment. The temple is going to be torn down. Surely, this is the moment. This is when Jesus is going to step into his own and become the King of kings and Lord of lords and Messiah that they're expecting. And so when they ask him, they have day of the Lord on their mind. And day of the Lord for them is Joel's prophecy and Daniel's prophecy. The day where Messiah comes and pronounces judgment over all the nations and restores all things to what it should be like. And this is what they were expecting. They had no sense that this would be a long process or whatever. They just knew that when Messiah came, he would make everything right. And so they asked him, is this the time? And how can we know? How can we know? What will precede it? What will, what will help us know so that we're ready? But that's what they were asking. And as I said, it's a question that's been on the lips of, of Christians for over 2,000 years. It's a question that's on many of our lips, and we'll talk about that in a second as well. But there are some challenges that we have to face up to with this, and even in this very chapter, in this chapter of Matthew 24. For one thing, when Jesus goes on to answer the question, he, he uses three different senses of when. He really kind of gives three different answers. You can look at the references there, but I'll just read them for you. 
So on the one hand, Jesus seems to, seems to indicate that, that the moment is imminent. That the moment is just right around the corner. In verses 33 and 30 to 35, he says, Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This generation, he says, it's right at the door. It's within your lifetime, he says. But then there's another sense in which his answer seems to indicate that it's delayed, that it's going to take some time. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. In verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here he seems to indicate that, that there's something that has to happen. It's going to be some time before the end comes. And then there's also a sense of him conveying an uncertainty of not really knowing when it's going to come. Verses 42 to 44, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is all in chapter 24. In answer to the question, when and how can we know? And so Jesus' answer itself seems to be a bit perplexing. Now stay with me. I realize some of you are way ahead of me on this and, and have already told me, Kevin, you got it wrong and you've got it all figured out. I'll come back to that in just a second. This is also compounded by the fact that in the scriptures... We have three distinct senses of time that are used and employed. The way the ancients thought about time is not exactly the same way that you and I do in the scientific age. You and I think of time in a very linear, in a very precise, in a very chronological way. And they did not think of time that way. They had three different senses of time that were part of their very, very perspective in the way they looked at life and the world. There's chronos. These are the three Greek words that are used for time uh, in the New Testament. Chronos time. Chronos means the regular passage of time. That might be the one that we're familiar with. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Time just keeps moving. This moment, future moment, past, present, future. Just the, the, the movement of history, the movement of time. That's chronos time. We get our word chronology from that. So that kind of makes sense to us. But then there's kairos time. That's another kind of time. And kairos means an appointed time. A time that has been designated. So for example, in two weeks time, Peter and Sherry's, Sherry Carroll's daughter, Brooke, is going to get married. Right? Yes? She's getting married. So I, I, I don't know when that date was set. They could tell us. But there was a time in the past when that date was set. They're getting married on this day. That's Kairos time. That's a day that's been appointed. That's the day that's been set that on this day, this is going to happen. And the Bible uses that. The Bible refers to events, moments in history that are Kairos moments. They are moments that have been set 
to happen on certain days. So in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, when Jesus, after John is put in prison, and he comes and he, and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, he's using Kairos time. The appointed time for Jesus to come had arrived. The appointed time for Jesus to begin preaching and instituting the kingdom of heaven had arrived. It had been appointed in the past. It was now fulfilled. That's Kairos time. And then there's Horos time. Horos is a set time. And this is a time that, that comes around. It might come around regularly, like Christmas, for example. Every December, we anticipate, you know, our, we as a staff, you know, after we get back in the fall, and once we've had our fall launch, we immediately begin thinking of Advent and planning for Advent and planning for the Christmas season. It's going to come around every year. It's Horos time. It's a, it's a, it's a set time that, that we can anticipate. We know when it's coming. It's coming. We can get ready for it. And that's Horos time. So Jesus seems to, to kind of fluctuate a little bit on, on his answer. And there's, it's not really. When we understand what he's saying, it makes sense. But then in the ancient world, there were these different senses of time. And so when you and I try to make sense of the biblical record, both Jesus in his Olivet uh, prophecy in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, and also in the prophecies of old of Joel and Daniel and, and uh, Zechariah, and then on into the New Testament in Thessalonians and Revelation, when we take this literature that seems to be talking about the end of the age and the coming of Jesus and try to make sense of it, we're, we're, we're having to work with these different senses of time and the perplexing answers of Jesus. And we, we put all kinds of constructs together. Christians have numerous patterns that have been developed over the ages for the end time. The events that have to happen, what's going to follow when, what has to happen before Jesus returns, what happens after Jesus returns... Most of us, as evangelical Christians, would be, would be familiar with premillennialism and the dispensationalist approach to these things. It's what we grew up with, it's what we were taught, it's what we're most comfortable with, maybe we've studied it, learned it for ourselves. But that's only one way that this gets broken down by Christians. We might believe it's the right way, and I'm not saying it's not. It could very well be true. But it not, might not be either. George Eldon Ladd says this. He's a New Testament theologian and he says this. He says, It is impossible to construct an eschatological scheme. Now, eschatological means the things of the end. Scheme means a pattern or a map. So he's saying it is impossible to construct an end time map from Jesus' teaching. He is concerned with the certainty of the future and the bearing of the future on the present, not with apocalyptic schemata. See, Jesus employs a type of language called apocalypse or apocalyptic language. It's the same thing that's used in the book of Revelation and in Zechariah. It was something they were familiar with. Joel, it was a, it was a very vivid, image-rich language that was used to describe events of a cataclysmic nature. And the day of the Lord, often in the Old Testament, is described using apocalyptic language. Now the challenge and the problem is when people of the 20th and 21st century take that language 
and try to use it the way we use language today. We have to go back to their day and understand what it meant to them and how they looked at it. See, in the first part of chapter 24, Jesus uses apocalyptic language to talk about the destruction of the temple and the coming of the end. They would get that. They were day of the Lord, cataclysmic, yet we understand that. But then he shifts. Then he shifts and goes on to talk to them about how they're meant to live until that day comes. And so the real emphasis in Jesus' teaching was not on how the events of the end time were going to happen. It was a certainty. Yes, absolutely. There is a, there is a kairos moment. There is a day appointed. But the real emphasis of Jesus was on what that means for us and how we are meant to live our lives in the light of that. There's nothing wrong with taking the prophetic constructs and working through them and and putting pieces together. You know, I mean, to to have a desire to do that and to to want to do that can be fine. Where where we get on dangerous ground is when when we take those kinds of things and we trumpet them out as being truth for all people for all time. I'll give you an example. When I was a young Christian, I was very enthusiastic. And... Uh, as I said, I grew up in a Bible-believing church, a Bible-teaching church. So I began to dig into the Bible. So one of the things that I decided to do was map out a timeline. Now, in this church, it was a fairly conservative church. We believed in a 6,000-year human history, six days of creation, right? A day for year, uh, a thousand-year principle. The fact that, that there were going to be 6,000 years of human history and then Jesus was going to return and then there would be a 1,000-year millennium, uh, right? The kingdom of God on earth and it would all be good. So that was our construct, and I, I bought into that big time and believed that. So I decided, you know, we're, we're kind of, we lived, we were in a church that believed that the return of Jesus was imminent, like any day, that imminent. And so I took it on myself to do this study, and I did a study, and I went back and I mapped out, looking at all the chronologies in the Old Testament, the genealogies, and the mapping, you know, 400 years of slavery and then, you know, the period of David and all of this. And I put together this chronology. I put together this timeline. And I was trying to get to the date when the 6,000 years would be up. Right? And I got there. I worked it out. Had a great, you know, spreadsheet. You know, and we didn't have, I didn't have a computer. So it was all by hand. Right? So, but I had this great spreadsheet, and I had it mapped out, right? And I, had it, and I didn't have it to the day, because I wasn't that good. But I, but I had it coming down. I said, it's going to be 1982. And it matched everything that I'd been taught, because we believed that the return was imminent. And so I took this sheet, and I took it to my, my pastor, and I showed it to him. And he came back to me, and he said, well, Kev, he said, that's interesting. Because there was one problem. It was 1983. It was 19, now I was off by a year, I guess, right? Um, my point is, we can take the biblical data, we can take the biblical evidence, and we can put it together and create timelines and patterns for how the end will be, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But that's not the point. That wasn't Jesus' point, it's not our point. The point is there is an end coming. How will we live? 
until that day comes. Here's the key. D.A. Carson has a great one-hour Bible study on Right Now Media on the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' sermon or his, his message that was given on the Mount of Olives. You'll find it in Matthew 24, 25, and then also in Mark 13. And, but but it's, it's considered his, his message from the Mount of Olives. And he, he goes through and does a great job of... of working through that and exegeting that and talking about what it was that Jesus was saying. Much better than I could do. So if you have an hour of your time, go to Right Now Media, look up D.A. Carson, Parable of the Sheep and the Goats, and it's well worth the hour of your time to watch it. He's a great teacher. But he says this. He says, The Olivet Discourse is not about the end of the world as much as it is about how we are to wait for the end of the world. Love that. Please hear that. It's not about when the end of the world will come. It's about how you and I are meant to live before it comes. How we are meant to live before it comes. It is coming. But the New Testament emphasis is not on how or when, but rather stresses the urgency of living, witnessing, and persevering now. By far, that is the emphasis of the New Testament over trying to figure out when it's all going to happen. Now make no mistake, there is a Kairos moment in the future. There is a Kairos time that has been set that is coming. I think Paul, of all the passages that we could look at, I think the Apostle Paul really puts it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 25. Interesting that he's, this is the resurrection chapter where he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and he puts this in here. He says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, but each of them in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you see what the, where the emphasis is in that passage? It's on the work of Christ. It's on the work that Christ is doing until the time of the end comes. It's the work that Jesus is doing. The restoration. We call this season restore on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's what the kingdom of God now does and seeks to do. Is to restore everything that God has made to himself. And that is the work of Christ. All creation waits for the manifestation of the children of God. And that has been the work of Christ for 2,000 years. It continues to be the work of Christ. And it will continue to be the work of Christ until the day appointed in the future. When the end comes. And he takes everything that he has submitted to himself and returns it to the Father. Here, Father, just as you had intended. 
It's restored. Here it is. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what you and I as his people are caught up in and all about. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, you know, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Therefore, as Christ's ambassadors, we implore you, be reconciled to God. You see, you and I as witnesses, just like the first century disciples, because we know what it is to be reconciled by God, because we know what it is to live in the kingdom of heaven now, we are now sent out into the world to bear witness to that through our lives and our words and our deeds so that others might also be drawn and be reconciled to God and be restored. And in our workplaces, in our institutions, we are meant to go out and restore the kingdom of heaven through our work, through our ability to influence and and shape. And Christ in us and through us seeks to restore all things to God's original intent. And that's what he's occupied with while the day comes. And that's how you and I should live. That's how you and I are meant to live as well. So here's the lesson of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven that is already, but not yet. And my prayer would be that at the end of this ministry year, with all of this focus on the kingdom of heaven, that we would have heard loud and clear this plea. Let us not wait for a kingdom to come. But rather, let us work on behalf of a kingdom already here. There is a kingdom coming in its fullness, but it's already here. We're already a part of it. It's already at work here. And we're called to help bring that about in its fullness even more. That should be our posture. And as we're going to hear in the remaining messages this month, there is an expectation that God has That because we are part of that kingdom, we will work on its behalf. And one day, when that day comes, and we stand before him, he's going to say, how'd you do? How'd you do? We'll hear more about that in the weeks ahead. I'll ask the ushers to come forward as we get ready for our communion I thought that I would share the aspect of communion that I think fits so well with what we're talking about today from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. Verse 27 says, He took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which I poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I love that because we have the sense of all the different senses of time coming together in communion. So when we take of the bread and we take of the cup in a few minutes, we take it as a memorial of the past. Remembering Jesus' finished work on the cross. Remembering that that 
at that Kairos moment when Jesus went to the cross and then could say, it is finished. Everything in heaven and earth was changed. A once in a lifetime, once for all time sacrifice that never needed to be repeated. All of history before that looked toward it. All of history since has looked back upon it and we remember it. That Kairos moment when Jesus said, it is finished. Christ said, wherever two or more of you are gathered, I'm there with you. And he says, when we share in the cup, is it not koinonia, fellowship with him? Is it not intimate relationship with him? And so we know that in the present, as we take of the bread and we take of the cup, you and I are having fellowship with Jesus right here, right now. Jesus and, and you and I are, are linked together. He's here with us as we take of the bread and the cup right now in the present. And when we take of the cup especially, but the cup and the bread, we look forward to that time in the future when we will be able to share at the Lord's table in the glorious fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, in all of its wonder and in all of its majesty, that day yet appointed, that kairos moment yet in the future that is coming but is not here yet, when we will sit with the, with the lamb at the marriage supper, at the marriage feast, and share in the bread and the wine in that moment that we yet await. And all of that, past, present, and future, are caught up in what we do right now. We have such a great salvation. Such a great salvation. And such a Savior. Let's give thanks. It's true, Lord. It's true. It is true. You are such a Savior. You are such a Lord and such a King. You could, if you chose to, assert your authority and your might and make every knee bow to you. But you don't. You are a shepherd, a good shepherd, a great shepherd. You are a God of love and grace. And you invite and you draw all to you. You do not compel. And yet, Lord, when we know you, you are irresistible. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for making yourself known to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we take of this communion, may we experience the reality of your presence with us and in us. May we be comforted. May we be assured. May we be strengthened. May we be healed. May we be emboldened as your people before we leave this place. And we look forward to that day, Lord, we really do, when we will be with you and with one another and all of the hosts in heaven. Indeed, even the hosts in the book of Revelation say, when, Lord, how long? All creation is waiting for that day. And so we also, Lord, look forward to that. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the meantime to make good work of our lives for your kingdom so that through us your kingdom may come and be on earth as it is in heaven. So as we take of the bread and the cup, Lord, we ask you to bless this communion. Bless the bread. Bless the cup. 
that we might have fellowship with you and that we might glorify you. And all these things we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.